The medical model of disability supposes that a disability is a diagnosis that requires treatment or medical intervention. And for many decades now, this view has been criticized by people in favor of an opposing view, the social model of disability. But there has been little historical examination of the origins of the term and how they have evolved over the years. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Andrew Hogan, the author of a humanities article published in CMAJ. In the article, Professor Hogan examines in detail the history of the social and medical models of disability and helps us understand where we are today with these models. Professor Andrew Hogan is Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Crichton University in Omaha, Nebraska. His research examines evolving clinical perspectives and narratives of disability. I've reached him in Omaha. Welcome, Professor Hogan. Thank you, Dorian. really appreciate you speaking with me and inviting me to do this. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so could, could we start off the podcast uh, just with a very general question? Um, why did you want to write on this topic for Canadian doctors? Well, I wanted to offer doctors a perspective on disability and on medicine that is not generally taught to clinicians in the course of their professional training, specifically a historical view on various critiques of medicine and where they come from. Uh, I really think clinical professionals need to understand various uh, the various narratives that patients enter the clinic with their various perspectives on medicine and what it has to offer them. And what I've found is that for people with uh, and families with disabilities, this includes a concern of being reduced down or having uh, their lives, their experiences re reduced down to a specific medical condition with a focus on curing that condition rather than providing uh, a degree of social management and support. And so I really wanted to find a way to convey this history and its implications to physicians and clinicians more broadly practicing today. So in your article, you contrast two terms. You introduce the term medical model and social model. Can you expand a little bit for our listeners as to what you mean by those terms? Absolutely. I, I think it's important to understand that the term medical model is almost exclusively used as a critique. It's very rare to see a physician directly defend the medical model per se as something that informs their practice. You see it occasionally, but for the most part, it's a term used by critics. Uh, in general, the medical model as it's used is an argument that medicine is in some way overly reductive in its aims or too focused on uh, identifying a pathology or a diagnosis and suggesting a treatment rather than um, focusing on the individual experiences uh, unique perspectives and strengths of various patients or individuals. Critics of the medical model tend to argue that medicine is overly focused on individual problems and individual solutions. And as a result, the medical model and therefore medicine doesn't put sufficient pressure on society to change itself more broadly in terms of removing various stigmas and barriers and forms of oppression against uh, people with disabilities. 
Now, on the other hand, the social model argues that disability is a status which is imposed upon certain people by a society that refuses to accommodate their individual variations. Um, from this focus, we get solutions that are focused on political answers as opposed to medical answers. So a desire to see or uh, a focus on society as the location of the problem as opposed to an individual body, and therefore society as the location where changes need to be made. And these needed responses from the perspective of the social model may be both physical in terms of removing barriers and facilitating access, as well as changes in terms of attitudes and assumptions about what people with disabilities are capable of and the sorts of jobs or training that they're uh, capable of succeeding in. One of the fascinating things about your article is that you trace these strands of thinking back to the 1950s. And basically, we could say that many people from inside medicine and outside the medical community have criticized the way medicine has adopted the medical model for disability and mental illness. When and in what context did the critique originate? Well, I've been able to trace the medical model critique back to the mid-1950s. Uh, the term seems to have been coined by the psychiatrist uh, in New York State, Thomas Saz. Uh, actually, it was in Chicago in the 1950s and then moved to uh, Syracuse, New York. And his use of the medical model was a critique of his field's efforts to frame mental illness as a disease and therefore an appropriate condition for biomedical intervention. Now, Saz really saw this as a purposeful and admittedly an effective strategy uh, aimed at raising the status of psychiatry in medicine. Psychiatry for much of recent history, going back to the 19th century, has been a relatively low-status field within the medical profession, and there were various efforts in the mid to late 20th century to try to enhance the status of psychiatry and uh, creating biomedical understandings of so-called mental illness was one way of doing this. Now, sociologists picked up on the term and the concept of a medical model and sort of expanded its use to criticize what they called uh, the medicalization primarily of various deviant behaviors, whether that be alcoholism or anything else in that realm. Um, criticism of the medical model of disability specifically has its origins actually in the 1970s and once again comes from within the medical profession. In particular, I found that a, uh, a British rheumatologist, Philip H.N. Wood, who was a, a writer who uh, worked for the World Health Organization, sought to identify and critique the relatively narrow view of the medical community on disability, tending to focus on its bodily and biological traits rather than various uh, psychosocial aspects and the effects of disability on social roles. Moving into the 1980s and 90s, various disability self-advocates popularized the term to critique the focus of medicine uh, on disability as an individual problem with a discrete medical solution rather than as a form of social oppression. And so uh, the use of the term has evolved and been applied in various ways, but has remained somewhat constant since the 1950s up to the present day. So that was a great 
overview of the history of, of thinking around the medical model, I wanted to turn back to the 1950s, if we could, for a minute, and talk about a figure I find very interesting, Thomas Saz. Saz was a psychiatrist and a part of the anti-psychiatry movement. His views on the medical model, especially as it applies to psychiatry, ruffled some feathers in the medical community of the 1950s and 60s. He could be pretty extreme. In reading Saz, did you get a sense that he was talking about people designated with the most severe and chronic forms of emotional trouble? Or was he mostly concerned that the medical model was being applied to people we might consider today to have milder forms of suffering? So Saz's critique of psychiatry and of the medical model was quite broad-based. Uh, he viewed the medicalization of deviant behavior, and he picked up the term medicalization from sociologists in the 1960s and 70s, but he viewed the problem of medicalization as ranging from mild to severe cases, primarily as a means to increase the power and the reach of psychiatrists. And he also importantly saw it as a barrier to the liberty, to the freedom of those who were labeled with mental illness or deviancy of some form. Unlike many other critics of the medical model who argued for more resources from society by way of government, Saz's critiques interestingly come from a strongly libertarian perspective. So one of his critiques was actually with things like the insanity defense, which he didn't believe was appropriate. He felt that people should be held accountable for their actions and that mental illness was in a sense a myth that was used to stigmatize certain people, and this was across a broad range of behavior, and in doing so, enhanced the status of psychiatry and its ability to uh, treat these people or label them in a appropriately medical way. In your paper, you mentioned George Engel and the biopsychosocial model of illness, which is a term, the biopsychosocial model, that I'd say most of our listeners will have had drilled into their mind through medical training. Um, yet, you imply quite strongly that, that that model might just hide the problem of disability from doctors' minds. Can you tell us about this point of view? Yeah, absolutely. So Engel was notably a very vocal critic of medicine and of the medical model, but he did so from a particular perspective. One focused on reforming medicine from within. He believed, in a sense, that medicine needed to be done better and that physicians, based on their current training with some improvements, were the right people to do that. The idea behind the biopsychosocial model was and is to integrate the biomedical aspects of disease and of medical practice with various psychosocial aspects. And Engel greatly expanded this model beyond just focusing on psychiatry, and that's where he got his start, to focusing on medical care more broadly. So even in, say, in a, the situation of an acute heart attack or something like that, a biopsychosocial perspective, he argued, would improve patient care. Now, importantly, Engel's biopsychosocial model did not fundamentally question the value of various medical approaches and physicians as it applied to medical care. And as a result, the biopsychosocial model, particularly among disability self-advocates, was critiqued. And it was critiqued by arguing that 
even if it included psychosocial aspects of disease and disability, it continued to privilege uh, the biological aspect of disease and disability as being the most fundamentally important one, the origins of disability within an individual body, with and just adding some psychosocial add-ons to uh, that perspective. Um, and so the argument from the disability community was that the biopsychosocial model, in effect, continues the focus on individuals as opposed to on societal problems, and thus undercuts the goals and the truly unique perspective of the social model of disability, which begins with society and its oppression of people with disabilities. So far, we've been talking about critics from within medicine, Saz and Engel. Um, then in your article, you move on to a fascinating character who's from outside of medicine, a sociologist, Irving Zola. Uh, and I think he, he was a subtler critic than Thomas Saz. Um, can you tell our listeners a little about Irving Zola's views on physical disability? Yeah, so Irving Zola was a sociologist who came up during the 1960s and really rose to prominence by the late 1960s as a critic of medicalization. He actually coined the term around 1968. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that Zola was a more mild critic than Saz per se. He also argued that medicine was an institution of social control and that it stigmatized people as being deviant or for various what was called at the time deviant behaviors. Where Zola did differ from Saz, importantly, was in his focus on physical disabilities. Saz, as a psychiatrist, was mostly focused on mental health. And Zola, as a person who actually identified as having a disability, um, a physical disability, um, began to really apply the medical model, model and medicalization critique to uh, various understandings of disability during the uh, late 1970s and early 1980s, when he really became a out-and-out and committed disability self-advocate. And over the course of his career, he began to promote what he called a universalist model, which highlighted, importantly, that accommodations for people with disabilities actually benefit everyone all of the time. So they're not just for people with disabilities. And there's lots of great examples of this that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. Things like curb cuts, which are useful for, for wheelchair users, but are also useful for all of us. Or things like elevators and subway stations and in buildings, which we all benefit from. And Zola pointed out, and uh, I think this is an important perspective to have, that while we may not all currently identify as people with disabilities, we are all temporarily able. That almost every person alive today will at some point, at some point in their lives, experience some form of disability. And so we benefit from a universalist perspective, both from the various uh, barriers and accommodations that exist for people with disabilities as able-bodied people, and we also will benefit from them as inevitably disabled people at some point in our lives, whether temporarily or permanently. The universalist perspective brings me to the next question, which is more broadly, why should we care about history in this context? Why is this important to doctors? So I think it's really important that, that doctors are aware of the outcomes of nihilistic thinking and nihilistic policies. And here I'm thinking about, especially in the 
late 19th, early to mid 20th century, the policies around institutionalization of people with mental illness, people with uh, intellectual disabilities and other uh, conditions, of the stigma that comes out of a nihilistic approach, the assumption that somebody's life is never going to improve, that supports can't do anything for them, and the poverty that certainly comes out of these low expectations and lack of opportunities and social supports. I think physicians also need to know that these critiques of medicine are longstanding and have evolved with time. Um, I think that physicians really benefit from knowing the whole story of how people with disabilities and disability self-advocates got where they are today, um, and that while medicine played a role, this is mostly a political story of self and family advocacy, especially going back to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. If you look seriously at this history, I think you can begin to see how physicians can play a role in continuing to support people with disabilities, but that this is very much about attitudes in addition to policies and politics and in addition, of course, to medical support. So let's continue this conversation talking about today now. Um, do you think the medical field has found an optimal balance of the medical versus social model when it comes to disability, or do you think we still have work to do? Uh, in general, I would say the answer to the balance question is no. Uh, my article highlights the distinctive worldviews that exist when it comes to critiquing medicine. Uh, I sort of distinguish between a reform worldview, which seeks to make medicine less reductive and more psychosocial, versus an exclusionist worldview, which suggests that uh, medicine should be excluded from certain aspects of disability and mental health. And this is a very difficult bridge to get. Bringing together the social and medical model for an optimal balance is arguably very difficult to do because these worldviews are so distinctive. Now, I would argue that medical education remains highly deficient in terms of presenting anything outside of a biomedical perspective on disease and disability. And similarly, support for people with disabilities within the medical profession remains quite minimal and patchy. The work we have to do really begins with medical education and training by integrating disability perspectives seriously and significantly into the curriculum. Um, physicians also need to engage more with people with disabilities outside of the clinical setting in order to have a better sense of the various challenges they face and supports they need. In the clinic, I really think that physicians and their uh, trainees with disabilities need greater standardized supports and advocates who can argue that they are equally capable to practice medicine and really have much to add to the profession. So here in Canada, the proposed Accessible Canada Act, which is known as Bill C-81, is now before the Senate uh, and will soon become law. How does this sort of top-down policymaking, or how might this kind of top-down policymaking change medicine for the better? Well, it's not entirely clear. It's always hard to know how a law passed at the federal level is going to affect the institutional practices of a profession. 
as you know, the U.S. has had a similar law for almost 30 years, but there's certainly major shortcomings still in support for people with disabilities as medical patients, as medical trainees and professionals. From a student or trainee perspective, medical school and really other graduate programs as well, in the United States at least, represent an important and significant gap in the standardized support and accommodations for people with disabilities. These sorts of supports are much better established for undergraduate students and for faculty members, but not so much for graduate students and trainees. Um, and so fixing this is definitely something that needs to be addressed, but not necessarily something that this law will directly achieve. Laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990, really set important standards. They gave a framework for, say, suing for inadequate accommodations. But I think really what's needed in medicine in particular is a culture change from within, especially in terms of institutional standards and a need to admit that there are problems within medicine when it comes to disability and there is a framework for solutions for fixing and addressing some of these problems. I think that we need to see people with disabilities as equal contributors in society, including within the medical professions. And my hope would be that passage of this law will encourage medical institutions to begin to think seriously about how they can achieve the spirit of the law in their assumptions and policies as opposed to just the letter. It's a very interesting comment that reminds me of, of uh, more recent critiques uh, of medicalization, for example, by Peter Conrad would say that medicalization is now being driven by forces outside the medical profession. For example, pharmaceutical companies and, uh, and consumers themselves who are, in a sense, self-medicalizing. Um, are we dealing with a larger societal problem that um, may not be dealt with by changes to the medical profession? Yeah, so critics of the medical model from the disability community have always pointed to the medical model as not being exclusive to medicine. It really is a broader societal problem. Society tends to focus on disability as a medical and importantly as an individual problem that has individual solutions as opposed to one in which society actually needs to reform and accommodate directly. And so medicalization is widespread within society and the medical profession alone is certainly not to blame for that situation. This is a broader societal change that goes certainly beyond uh, the medical profession and medical training itself, but it's an important place to start because medicine is a very influential part of our society and very much shapes the ways in which we think about human difference, human variability, and its acceptability. And so a, a more positive and accommodating and accepting stance towards disability within the medical profession and within the uh, associated fields, whether that be pharmaceuticals or other clinical professions, can really help to influence larger social shifts. This is a fascinating area, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to develop this article for the CMAJ and for helping put the problem of disability into a larger historical context. Nice to talk to you. Great to talk to you as well. I've been speaking with Andrew Hogan, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. To read the Humanities article he authored, visit cmaj.ca.
If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.